Welcome to As Yet Unexplained, a podcast series that delves into the unknown, sheds light on the unexplained, and offers new perspectives on the world around us. We explore all aspects of the paranormal and the unexplained, aiming to uncover the mysteries and enigmas that continue to evade explanation. In this episode, we explore the story of the Wem Ghost Photograph, a haunting image captured in the aftermath of a devastating fire that destroyed the old town hall in 1995. While the true cause of the fire remains a mystery, a series of strange and unexplained sightings emerge from the ashes, including the discovery of children's footprints and the apparition of a young girl in a long dress. The mystery only deepens when a photograph taken by John Rahilly appears to capture the ghostly figure of a young girl standing behind the fire escape, her body engulfed in a flame-like aura. Was this the ghost of Jane Churn, the young servant girl responsible for the Great Fire of Wem in 1677? Or was it a clever hoax created by a falling beam or a trick of light and flame. Join us as we explore the chilling story of the Ghost Wem photograph and the enduring fascination with ghostly photographs that persist to this day. We extend our sincere gratitude for your ongoing support and humbly request that you share your valuable insights with others by showing your appreciation through likes, subscriptions or leaving a review on your preferred podcast platform. Your feedback is of immeasurable worth and is instrumental in aiding us to expand and enhance our content. We would be truly grateful if you could take the time to express your thoughts and contribute to our growth by being an active part of the community. Thank you for your unwavering support and dedication. Kindly be advised that the audio content of this podcast may include disconcerting descriptions and dialogues which may cause discomfort to some listeners. Rest assured we take great care in presenting the narratives with prudence and compassion and we advise our audience to exercise caution if they find any of the material distressing. We humbly offer our deepest condolences to the victims of the stories recounted here. May our thoughts and sympathies provide some small measure of comfort to their loved ones as we embark on a journey to unravel the mysteries of the unknown. Join us as we traverse the uncharted terrain of the inexplicable and delve into the depths of the enigmatic. Spirit Photography 
The art of capturing spirits on film has a long history, dating back over 150 years to around 1861. However, the credibility of spirit photography has been the subject of much controversy and debate ever since. The reason for the lack of widespread acceptance regarding the authenticity of these photographs is primarily due to the fact that the photographs of the past were so heavily influenced by fraud. Interestingly, it is spirit photography that provides the most scientific evidence of apparitions. It is one of the only methods of capturing ghostly phenomena that approaches the rigorous standards of science. The reasons for this are fairly simple and include the fact that genuine spirit photos are clearly a physical phenomenon. The amount of energy that goes into producing such a photo can be measured by the way it appears in the image. A method of attempting to establish replication is possible, and finally, that it may be conceivable at some point to develop explanations for how spirit photographs are created and why they exist. Supernatural photography is thought to result from radiation affecting photosensitive film. While such results still occur today, the process has changed significantly since the early days of photography. Back then, photographers would coat a glass plate with a collodion film, a substance comprised of gun cotton dissolved in ether, which contained iodine and potassium. The plate would then be sensitised by being dipped into a bath of silver nitrate before the photograph was taken, while the plate was still wet. Each exposure was a thrill. Each batch of chemicals mixed was a new experiment, and each result was a reason to take another photo. Nowadays photography is taken for granted, and taking a photo is as simple as pressing a button. However, with advances in film cameras and technology over the last several decades, the once controversial field of spirit photography may be finally coming of age. Of course, none of these present advancements could have existed without the examples set in the past. The realm of spirit photography has undergone a remarkable metamorphosis from the days of yore. Unfortunately, duplicitous practices of early spirit photography have cast a shadow over current endeavours, making it arduous for modern-day ghost hunters to be taken seriously. The mere mention of the phrase spirit photography evokes images of a bygone era, an age plagued with dubious techniques and often ridiculous outcomes. But were all the photographs of the past fraudulent images created to swindle people out of their money? Some have claimed that the spirit photographs were initially produced accidentally, and only when unscrupulous photographers realised the wealth that could be made from them did they start producing the first fake images. However, were all of them fraudulent, or did a handful of fakes muddy the water for the many? William Mumlow an engraver and photographer from Boston, is considered a pioneer. During his foray into self-portraiture, Mumlow was struck by an unexpected figure that appeared next to him in one of his developed plates. Upon closer examination, it became clear that the figure was that of a deceased cousin who had passed away 12 years prior. 
Mumler claimed that while posing for the photograph, he felt an unusual trembling sensation in his right arm, which left him feeling completely drained. This groundbreaking photograph has since been recognised as the first official spirit photograph, paving the way for future photographers to delve into the paranormal through the lens of a camera. During the spiritualist movement's expansion, the photograph emerged and caught the attention of many. Both spiritualists and prominent photographers investigated it and claimed to accept Mumler's claim that this photograph was taken by myself, of myself, and there was not a living person in the room besides myself. Mumler was soon inundated with requests for similar photographs, and he eventually quit his job as an engraver for Bigelow Brothers and Canard, one of Boston's leading jewellers, to devote himself to spirit photography. William Black, a renowned Boston photographer and the inventor of the acid nitrate bath, was one of the photographers who scrutinised Mumler and his techniques. During a sitting in Mumler's studio, Black thoroughly examined the camera, plate, dipper and bath, and even monitored the plate from the moment its preparation began until it was sensitised and locked into the dark slide. After his portrait was taken, Black removed it from the camera and processed it himself. To his astonishment, he saw the figure of a man leaning over his shoulder and could not explain its appearance. Despite his initial lack of interest in the spiritual realm, or spiritualism, Mumler soon began to call himself a medium for taking spirit photographs. His photographs often depicted unrecognisable and blurry spirit extras, but in some cases the images were unmistakably the likenesses of deceased friends and family members. This claim immediately sparked controversy and scepticism. Even the testimony of New York Supreme Court Judge John Edmonds, who initially visited Mumler as a sceptic but left a believer, failed to silence critics and non-believers. Despite the backlash, Mumler continued to pursue his craft, and in 1869 he relocated to New York, where he established a new studio and charged up to $10 for each photograph. In 1863, Dr. Child from Philadelphia made a report on Mumler, who was cooperative and open to his investigation. Mumler allowed Child to observe his darkroom operations and examine his equipment. Child and his friends witnessed the entire process, from plate cleaning to developing, and the results were remarkable. Despite marking each plate with a diamond, every one contained a spirit image that differed significantly from any previously seen. Child failed to find any human agency responsible for the spirit extras, and he had no way of replicating them. The phenomena was inexplicable and mysterious, and Child's investigation only deepened the enigma. Mumler's ability to capture ghostly apparitions in his photographs was met with mixed reviews. Despite the controversy surrounding his work, Mumler's clientele grew. However, 
his success was short-lived. The mayor of New York, pressured by public outcry, ordered Mumler's arrest on charges of swindling credulous persons by what he called spirit photographs. Though he was later acquitted, the damage had been done. Mumler's reputation had been tarnished, and many believed that he had supplemented his authentic photographs with fraudulent ones in order to make ends meet. Nevertheless, some modern researchers speculate that Mumler may have inadvertently captured something unique in some of his images of ghostly figures. As time passed, more and more photographers, whether trained or not, emerged, branding themselves as mediums with the alleged ability to summon spirits of the dead in their images. This particular type of photography quickly gained popularity, and people flocked to studios to have their portraits taken, paying exorbitant prices for the chance to immortalise their loved ones who had passed on. The craze for spirit photography was so intense that it became a veritable goldmine for those who profited from it. With thousands of dollars pouring in from eager customers wanting to believe that their deceased relatives were reaching out to them from beyond the grave. In the early 20th century, interest in spirit photography began to wane. But it experienced a resurgence in the 1960s and 70s. During this time, a number of famous ghost photographs were taken, including the famous Brown Lady of Brainham Hall, which purportedly shows the ghost of Lady Dorothy Townsend, as featured in As Yet Unexplained Series 4, Episode 6. Despite the many hoaxes, there have been a number of ghost photographs that have defied explanation. One of the most famous of these is the Tulip Staircase ghost photograph, which was taken in 1966 at the National Maritime Museum in Greenwich, London. The photograph shows a ghostly figure on a staircase, but no one was present at the time the photograph was taken. The image has been extensively studied, but no one has been able to definitively explain the strange figure. The Tulip Staircase, residing in the Queen's House of Greenwich, boasts an impressive reputation as possibly the first unsupported spiral staircase in England. However, the staircase's grandeur is not the only thing that has garnered attention over the years. Reports of disembodied footsteps, eerie chanting children and even blood-stained landings have contributed to the staircase's reputation as a site of paranormal activity. Adding to the mystique is the ghostly photograph. A captivating photo taken in June of 1966 depicts a moody individual dramatically pulling themselves up the staircase. However, the image is more than just a simple picture. When the photo was taken by Reverend Ralph Hardy, no one was in sight. The retired clergyman, hailing from British Columbia, Canada, was visiting the National Maritime Museum housed in the Queen's House in Greenwich. The photo has since become a source of mystery, leaving many to question its authenticity and the possibility of a paranormal presence. Situated in London, the former royal residence has been a majestic abode for several royal wives, or queens, since its construction in 1666 to 1619. Its architectural marvels 
were commissioned by none other than Anne of Denmark, wife of King James I, who gave her Greenwich as an apology for swearing at her in public after she had accidentally shot one of his dogs. However, the original plan fell short when Queen Anne fell ill and passed away. The first floor was completed, but essentially capped over. Subsequently, King James I summoned the same architect, Inigo Jones, to oversee the completion of the house for his wife, Queen Henrietta Maria. Unfortunately, with the onset of the English Civil War, the house fell into disrepair and served as a kind of prisoner of war camp. After the war, it was repaired and once again used for housing royalty. Later, it became a place for educating and housing the orphans of sailors, before being transformed into the Royal Hospital School and then the National Maritime Museum. Undoubtedly, it had several other uses in between. It was during this visit to the museum with his wife that Hardy was struck with the memory of a stunning image of the renowned tulip staircase that he had seen in a magazine years prior. Eager to create a lasting memento of his trip, he attempted to capture the staircase in all its glory. Alas, the staircase was cordoned off, prohibiting any such approach from the optimal angle underneath. Undeterred, Hardy may do with a shot from behind the barrier. Despite this setback, he and his wife relished exploring the rest of the house, basking in the joy of their vacation before returning home. Upon returning to Canada, Hardy and his wife developed their film, and to their surprise, they discovered a ghostly figure on the staircase. The apparition appeared quite substantial, and yet Hardy knew that no one was on the staircase at the time he took the photo. Furthermore, no one could have accessed the staircase. The couple sent their photos and negatives to researchers, who then forwarded them to the Kodak laboratories. The lab concluded that the negatives had not been tampered with, and that the image was indeed captured on the film. Some speculate that there may have been more than one spectral person captured in the photo, both hooded with their heads bowed low, struggling as they climbed the stairs. After the release of the image, numerous attempts were made to contact the spirits on the tulip staircase, including a reenactment of the photo, hoping to recreate the same eerie conditions, and a seance was held. However, this haunting photograph is merely one instance of the paranormal occurrence that has been experienced at the house. Unexplainable footsteps have been heard on the staircase as well as the sound of chanting children. The most unsettling account describes a pallid woman clad in antiquated attire, seen scrubbing blood off the bottom step. Legend has it that a maid was hurled from the top of the staircase, a staggering 50 feet above, only to crash into the landing below. Other apparitions have been spotted skimming through the halls, but this photograph appears to be the sole physical, albeit possible, evidence of their existence. 
In recent years, ghost photography has continued to be a popular subject, with many people claiming to have captured images of ghosts on film. However, most of these photographs have been debunked, with experts suggesting that they are either hoaxes or the result of pareidolia, a phenomena in which the brain perceives patterns in random data. Despite the many hoaxes and debunked photographs, the allure of ghost photography remains strong and it continues to be a popular subject for both amateur and professional photographers alike. Wem is a town with a rich and varied history dating back to the Iron Age. Evidence of their settlements have been found in the form of two camps in the area. After the Roman conquest, the local tribes were overrun and the Romans colonised what is now Shropshire. To the Saxon founders, Wam meant a marsh. The marshy ground refers to the area surrounding the River Roden, which flows through the town. The 1086 entry in the Doomsday Book records Wem as being William Pantulf, holds it of Earl Roger, and that it consisted of four manors of farms. It paints a picture of a thickly wooded landscape with roebuck and hawks as part of the local wildlife. Wem remained with the Pantulf family for over a century, and they gave their name to the local places such as Panky Moor. In 1202, King John granted Wem permission to hold a market on a Sunday and on the Feast of St Peter until Sunday markets were banned in 1351 and the market day changed to Thursday, where it remains to this day. By the time of the Wars of the Roses, Wem was a well-established town with a substantial castle and walls but it was torn to the ground by the Earl of Salisbury on behalf of the Yorkists. It was later rebuilt in 1500 by Ralph Greystock. During the Civil War, Wem became the first town in Shropshire to declare for Parliament in 1643 under Colonel Mitten, who organised the town fortifications. The town had passed into the Darce and Howard families, before an attack on Wem by Lord Chapel was successfully held off by the townsfolk, giving rise to the verse, the women of Wem and a few musketeers beat Lord Chapel and all his cavaliers. Sir Thomas Adams, a local landowner, tanner and ex-Lord Mayor of London, founded a free school in Wem in 1650, which still exists today as Adams School. It was the year 1677 in Wem, where a young girl was working as a maid when disaster struck. She had gone upstairs to fetch some firewood and, as she was wedging a candle on a stick, accidentally caught the thatched roof of the cottage on fire. The flames quickly spread and before long the entire town was ablaze. Over 100 buildings were destroyed including the church steeple, and by the end of the night, 400 buildings had burned, and one man had lost his life. The fire was remembered 
for generations to come. Among the buildings lost in the Great Wem Fire of the 3rd of March 1677 was the Market Hall of Wem. Roughly 540 other buildings, including homes and outbuildings, were also lost in the fire. Many cattle were lost to the flames, and Richard Surratt, a shoemaker, died after being seen going under the market house, which then fell upon him. At the end of May 1677, a brief detailing the total loss was obtained. The loss of buildings came to £14,760, and household goods totaled £8,916. Judge Jeffreys, Lord Chief Justice of England, acquired the Barony of Wem in 1684. He never visited Wem, but did require the sobriquet of the Hanging Judge, following the brutal hanging of prisoners after the Monmouth Rebellion. His son inherited the title and did visit Wem, staying at Low Hall, which became known as Judge Jeffreys' house, and still stands today. In the 18th century, Wem produced more than its share of artists and writers, including John Ireland, famous for his biography of William Hogarth, William Hazlitt, the essayist and critic, and John Astley, the painter. The Reverend Samuel Garbett, the second master at Adams School, researched the history of the town and wrote The History of Wem. He lived in New Street, one of the few dwellings to have escaped the Great Fire. The Second Fire In 1995, Wem was rocked by a fierce fire that destroyed the old town hall. The true cause of the fire remains a mystery to this day, but as the smoke cleared, Locals were horrified by the strange and unexplained sightings that emerged from the ashes. Today, the restored town hall stands as a local landmark, but in the aftermath of the fire, one small section of the original building had mysteriously survived. The plaque, charred but intact, held a vital clue to the bizarre events that followed. Roger Stokes, a demolitions expert, was one of the first people on the scene the morning after the fire. He arrived at the town hall to assess the damage and make the building safe. As he and the fire officer walked up to the metal fire escape which had managed to survive the blaze, they noticed a series of what appeared to be footprints diagonally crossing the landing. Upon closer inspection, Stokes thought they were child's footprints, about the size of a 10 to 14 year old. He mentioned to the fire officer that kids must have been up early that morning, but the officer replied that no one had been there at all. They had been the first to arrive, with the fire crews on duty all night, and police officers outside, so there was no explanation for the footprints. It was the morning after that I arrived here at the town hall uh, to look at the damage along with the, the fire officer and assess what we could do to make the building safe. Uh, so we walked up the 
metal fire escape which was had managed to survive, uh, you get this sooty, oily deposit. And as we got up there and we came to walk onto the landing, I noticed a series of what appear to be footprints uh, coming across, diagonally across the, the, the landing. Looking at them, I thought, well, these are a child's footprints. They look to be about the size that are, I don't know, 10, 12, possibly 14. And I happened to mention to the fire officer, I, I said, the kids have been up here early this morning, haven't they? Uh, and he said, well, no, there's been nobody up here at all. We've been the first, we're the first two people that have been up here. We've had fire crew on duty all night, and there have also been police officers outside. So there's no, nobody been up here at all. Stokes wrote off the incident until a few weeks later, when one of the labourers on the site, along with the site agent, saw a figure wearing what appeared to be a long dress with a glow around it. Although they could not see the head in detail, they did not waste time taking a longer look at the figure, hightailing it back down the stairs as fast as they could. As the demolition crew moved in to clear the wreckage, one small section of the original town hall had mysteriously survived. Charred but intact, the plaque held a vital clue. The fire over 300 years ago, started by young Jane Churn, combined with the mysterious survival of the commemorative plaque, intensified the intrigue, but a crucial witness from the night of the fire emerged that would propel the mystery to the front pages of the world's press. One of the labourers, along with the site agent, saw a figure. They couldn't see the head in detail, but it looked like somebody wearing a long dress. And there was a glow around it. They obviously didn't really take too long a look at this. They saw it and hightailed it back down the, the stairs as fast as they could go. On the night of the fire, John O'Rahilly saw a large plume of smoke in the sky. He always carried his camera with him and after being stopped at a police cordon, jumped out of his car to take as many pictures as possible. At the time O'Rahilly took the photos, neither he nor the onlookers saw anything unusual except for the fire. Several months after the fire at Wemtown Hall in November 1995, O'Rahilly developed the photographs he had taken of the blaze in a small film studio he had erected in his garden shed. Along with the collection of pictures were stunning images of fire. However, one particular photograph stood out as extraordinary. The image was haunting, eerie and enigmatic. A truly remarkable and spine-tingling moment captured on film. Upon developing the photo, he noticed a small head sticking over the railings of the fire escape. This little head looked like a girl standing behind the fire escape, with a flame-like aura around her. The figure in the photo stands directly on the spot where Stokes discovered the footprints the following morning. Was this apparition Jane Churn, 
the young servant girl responsible for the devastating fire in Wem 400 years before? Was this the figure that the construction workers saw before they fled? If it wasn't Jane Churn, who or what was it? Yeah, on this specific night I was entering Wem, about two, three miles away, and I saw a large plume of smoke in the night sky. Now, I always take my cameras with me, and at this time, at this specific day, I had them with me in the car. So I jumped out, run round, and took as many pictures as possible of the fire. One was round the back on the fire escape, there was some on the, on the main roof of the building, and also round the front where I thought the front, the, the gate lamp was going to come down. When I was developing the, the negatives, I noticed there was a spot on one of the negatives that shouldn't have been there. I noticed there was a, like a small head sticking over the railings by the fire escape. The Association for Anomalous Phenomena, ASSAP, suggested that the image could have been created by a falling beam or a trick of light and flame. They concluded that the negative is a straightforward piece of black and white work and shows no sign of having been tampered with. Another theory posits that the human brain's capacity to perceive patterns within flames may have contributed to the creation of the image. The BBC investigated the Wem Ghost photograph for its show Out of This World, hosted by ITV presenter Chris Choi. O'Rahilly was interviewed in his garden and the burned-out remains of the town hall were toured. So then I developed it on, on paper and as I was swilling it, starting to develop it, this little head come through and it's like a, a body of a young girl. Looked to me like a girl standing behind the fire escape with the flame flapping around it. And where it come from, I don't know. The conventional tale of the ghostly photograph was also recounted. However, when the BBC took the photo to the National Museum of Photography, Film and Television, viewers were presented with a different story. Both photography and negative were scrutinised, but no evidence of hoaxing, fraud or double exposure was found. Some suggested that the apparition might have been created by smoke, flame and shadow, but this theory remained unproven. The case was deemed open by the Association for the Scientific Study of Anomalous Phenomena, and the photograph's authenticity was upheld by Dr Vernon Harrison, former president of the Royal Photographic Society, who found no signs of tampering. Despite this, Many people believe that the image is a hoax, while others maintain that it is a bona fide ghost figure captured on camera. Dr. Harrison found, in his opinion, that what O'Rahilly caught on film was basically quite innocent. While on the photograph is a large chunk of wood that happened to be caught in the act of falling. So, in Vernon's opinion, this was just bits of debris from the building. In addition, Analysis of the negative by the National Museum of Photography, Film and Television in Bradford revealed a series of horizontal lines on the girl's face that were not present in other parts of the image, 
indicating that the picture may have been taken from a television set and imposed on the fire picture. Other photographs and films taken of the blaze showed no evidence of apparitions. Despite Dr. Harrison's analysis, the case remains open. Was the figure caught on film merely a trick of timing and light, or possibly an apparition? Even though the photograph offers no clear answers, the story of Wem will continue to haunt us. James Facebook In a dramatic twist to the story, Shropshire's infamous ghost, Jane Churn, has made a gloomy prophecy from beyond the grave. In messages posted on her Facebook page, she predicted the end of civilization in 2012, warning of the arrival of the planet Nibiru, the Dark Star. Internet pranksters are believed to be behind the Facebook page, but the eerie predictions have sent shivers down the spines of the townsfolk. The legend of Jane Churn continues to captivate the imagination as the mystery surrounding the events at Wem Town Hall deepen. The excerpts feature two statements made by an unknown woman. In one, she warns of the impending apocalypse, urging her audience to prepare for the arrival of the planet Nibiru, the Dark Star, in 2012. In the other, she predicts that civilization as we know it will not end but will rather be reshaped by the few who survive. The page containing these statements has accumulated a substantial following of over 900 friends. Despite the persistent curiosity of countless individuals, Jane's reluctance to provide further information only adds to the enigmatic allure of her story. Many have attempted to pry the secrets from her, but her responses remain as elusive and enigmatic as ever. The Postcard The alleged ghost in the Wem photograph was debunked by Brian Lear. A local pensioner aged 77 was reading the ninth edition of the Shropshire Star when he came across a postcard from Wem that was franked in 1922. As he beheld the photo, he noticed that the girl in the corner bore a remarkable resemblance to the girl in the famous photograph. Upon further inspection, it became glaringly apparent that the two images were identical in terms of the girl's facial features, dress, and even the wrinkles in her hat. Although some individuals still argue that the original photograph is authentic and that the two photos look dissimilar, it is increasingly evident that the image is a hoax. Mr Overhilly, who took the photo, died in 2005, leaving no explanation for the possible hoax. Dr Richard Wiseman's scrutiny of putative ghost photos has failed to dampen public interest in the supernatural. Alleged apparitions still abound online, and the allure of the paranormal persists. Even a 1922 postcard bearing a young girl's image 
has been suggested as evidence for a ghostly presence. Pyrokinesis, or the ability to initiate fires through supernatural means, is a prevalent motif in British ghost lore. While fire is not typically associated with the Wem ghost, it is a fixture in the stories surrounding Borley Rectory, dubbed the most haunted house in England, as well as in Edinburgh, where tales of a spectral female arsonist who terrorise entire streets persist well into the 19th century. No matter how many explanations are offered, the fascination with ghostly photographs remains undiminished, fueling our insatiable curiosity with the otherworldly. O'Rahilly passed away due to a cardiac arrest in 2005. Peggy Carson, a local councillor who was acquainted with O'Rahilly, believed that the attention his photograph garnered may have contributed to his untimely demise. Tom Edwards, a 69-year-old local historian, attested to O'Rahilly's unwavering insistence that the photograph was authentic, and Edwards himself believes the veracity of O'Rahilly's claim. We value your support and feedback above all else. Our bio includes links to our social media accounts and email addresses, and we encourage you to reach out to us with any ideas, suggestions or thoughts for future episodes. Your input is essential to our ongoing success and our ability to deliver exceptional content that resonates with our listeners. Thank you for being part of our community and helping us to achieve our goals. We express our heartfelt gratitude for your invaluable time and undivided attention. Your unwavering encouragement and unwavering support have been our constant inspiration as we venture into the unknown. We place great emphasis on ensuring our podcast is accessible to everyone. Our commitment to this principle is reflected in the fact that we have all previous episodes available at no cost on all major platforms and our website. Furthermore, if our listeners take pleasure in the music that was composed exclusively for this series, they can listen to it in its entirety on Bandcamp without incurring any charges. We endeavour to make sure our listeners can enjoy our podcast with ease and convenience, and we strive to provide them with a seamless and uninterrupted listening experience. Thanks for listening. UFOs, crime, folklore, mysteries, cryptids, horror, horror, paranormal, paranormal. UFOs, crime, crime, folklore, folklore. mysteries, cryptids. The Occultaria of Albion investigates and explores a world that many believe does not exist. 
a world of the uncanny, where man's most ancient fears are allowed to run freely. It is not to be found in some faraway mystical land. This world is beneath your feet, at the shopping center, across the road, and around the corner from where you live. Discover the world of the Occultaria of Albion, paranormal publications and podcasts. Go to occultariaofalbion.co.uk to discover more.